Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, advertising, technology, because in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with Adweek.com. With me as he is each week is Tim Nutt, our creative editor. Tim, great to have you back. Thanks for having me. And uh, also back, some uh, frequent guests. We've got Christina Monlos, a senior editor covering the brand marketing world and a producer on the podcast. Welcome back, Christina. What's up? <laughs> and we've got back Sammy Main, a staff writer covering digital media and frequent guest on the show. Welcome back, Sammy. Hi, everybody. We've got a lot to talk about today, so let's go ahead and dive into the news. All right, so uh, one of the bigger ad controversies of the last week, and it was kind of an interesting case study, so I kind of wanted to unpack it a bit now that we know a little more detail, uh, was Dove running what was widely uh, condemned as a racist uh, short-form ad on Facebook. It was kind of a looping GIF-type situation. And uh, basically it was a a black woman in a a brown uh, turtleneck kind of, uh, I think, some kind of sweater, and then she pulls it off over her head, and she becomes a white woman with a similar haircut, wearing a white shirt. And uh, and then it was an ad for body wash, I think, uh, some kind of washing, uh, cleansing thing. And so uh, this is a metaphor that's been used in really uh, racist ways in the past uh, a lot. Like going back a ways, like this idea of cleaning black people and making them white. I mean, it goes back to like really old, really racist ads. It was used more recently in a, re- in a really kind of... Uh, uh, widely condemned Chinese ad where a woman throws a black man into a washing machine and he comes out Asian uh, and, and therefore clean. Uh, so this is a, a, a metaphor that has upset people quite a bit in the past and has quite a legacy. Uh, and people, you know, obviously were pretty upset about it. And then um, it was, you know, taken down very quickly. They apologized for kind of being racially insensitive. Uh, but then we saw, you know, over the day, two days after, we heard that uh, it was part of a larger spot, which is kind of more like if you remember the video for Black or White by Michael Jackson, this like kind of rapid transformation of people of different, uh, you know, appearances and races. And it was supposed to have a really positive message. But in this era of six second, three second looping animated GIFs where you try to carve up, you know, your, your media into as many little pieces as you can for social content, 
they made the wrong choice and they picked a, uh, a clip of a you know, black woman turning into a white woman in an ad for a, a cleansing product. And, you know, so it's been an interesting one. The, the backlash was obviously pretty fierce. Uh, but, uh, you know, we've run a few follow up stories kind of about this that they just were trying to carve up this this longer piece, which was only, I think, 30 seconds or something. It's and uh, but but carve it up into these smaller pieces. Christina, what do you think are the lessons of, of this experience? I mean, I, I think that it's pretty clear that, one, if you're going to do something short form, make sure it actually makes sense. <laughs> like, it, it, it uh, I don't know. The, the ad was really, really awful for so many reasons. Um, but then on top of that, like, you know, have multiple sets of eyes of people who maybe aren't, you know, only white creatives looking at it to make sure that, um, you know, it won't be seen. I don't know, but white people should be able to see that an ad is racist (laughs) without it having to like, I don't know. It's just, it's such a mess. It's such, it's such a mess. Well, and this seems to highlight kind of the issues that people talk about of when you, it's unconscious bias in, in a way in the sense of you don't know what you, you're not aware of or what you're not sensitive to if you, do, if you lack that diversity in the room. And so I think even if we had known the context early on, there still would have been a valid discussion about the need for more diversity in both brand marketing and on the agency side. Yeah. I have a feeling that nobody really vetted the three-second version, that, that they probably put together a 30 that was fine. And then someone else down the chain kind of cuts it into different things. And you, you probably don't have any vetting of that of that stuff or very minimal vetting of it. Yeah. You know, but 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 you know, we had the Pepsi fiasco. I mean, sometimes when you have a lot of eyeballs on something, it still gets through. Um which is the more depressing point. Yeah, and, and an interesting. So we had a, our Twitter chat uh, last week uh, was about a lot of these recent controversies. We've had a lot of heavy stuff in between Harvey Weinstein and, and harassment and uh, racism, allegations with Dove and, uh, you know, just uh, hypocrisy that we're going to talk about in another uh, news item in a minute. A lot of stuff to talk about in the ad industry and some very heavy topics. And one of the recurring themes in this discussion of Dove and of kind of how marketers fall into these traps is that even if you say we're diverse, we have have diversity initiatives – uh, you know, that's not the same as being inclusive. And I was at a friend of mine, uh, Edward Bowser, uh, who's a wonderful guy uh, and who gave a speech yesterday. He's a journalist who now works for a marketing agency creating content, so somewhat topical. And he uh, he gave the speech yesterday about uh, diversity and representation in media. And he said, uh, you know, diversity is making sure people have a seat at the table. Inclusion is making sure people have a voice at the table. And so it's not always enough to just say, yeah, we hired you know, a, a, a good diversity of people, are they actually in the mix? Are they actually in the decision-making process and in those conversations? And we don't know exactly what happened behind the scenes here, but I think it's a good lesson for everybody. It's just like, you know, there would be fewer of these <laughs> if you had a more diverse workforce. I think it's also of note, this isn't the first time Dove has had this exact same misstep. Like even in the past couple of years, they've had, you know, women of different shades stand in a row according to, you know, skin tone and like just other off 
ways of, of, of looking at their products. And so it just seems that they still haven't learned their lesson or they have new people at the table who need to learn the lesson themselves or, or something. So there's definitely a, a lot of lessons they need to be keeping in mind. It, it, yeah, I think Dove has a, has a problem sometimes oversimplifying their message and they sort of mm-hmm. boil it down to, you know, they, they had the, the problem a few months ago with the bottles that they made look like, you know, different body shapes. I mean, mm-hmm. that was so reductive yep. that it was like offensive in itself. So, I mean, yeah, they've, they've, they've reduced beauty down to such a, you know, such a reductive idea that um, they, they, it gets, you know, it gets ridiculous on occasion. What's fascinating to me, and maybe Christina, I'll probably get you to, to weigh in on this because you've been covering this, you know, about as long as as it's been happening. Is Dove was kind of one of the first brands to really get a lot of attention in this space of empowerment and and body image, but their their tone and their message of like you're prettier than you think it that tone didn't really keep up with the times. Like it it kind of started to feel very dated very quickly. I mean, am I right in saying that? It just feels like they didn't adapt yeah. in the way that Like a Girl and some of these other things became less about attractiveness or beauty. They still seem obsessed with kind of how you look and trying to convince you that pretty is some kind of gauge of, you know, of your worth, even though they're they're kind of going against that. Yeah, I mean, compare it to the recent, you know, CoverGirl rebrand that came out this week where it's, you know, uh, their new tagline is I am what I make up. And it has to do with like, you know, um, looking at beauty as something where people, you know, can feel empowered by what they can make themselves look like with what, you know, whatever products that they use from the CoverGirl line. But then also like you know, talk, picking a bunch of people who uh, like our cover girl this week um, or this past week, Issa Rae, where it's like she has been able to build her own career. Mm-hmm. And so she is what she makes up. I don't know. It's it's like you compare that kind of messaging to what Dove is still putting out where it's like relating women's bodies to bo- bottles and um you know, trying to approach beauty from this very old school, you know, we can make you prettier or we can make you feel pretty or, you know, pretty is, is what beauty is. And I don't, I don't really think that's what the messaging should be anymore. It's not that simple. Yeah. I think they're trying to move away from that, but then this, things like this highlight that, man, they just, they stumble, uh, you know, so often. Um, but you know, I guess good on them for trying to evolve and we'll see what continues to come out, but it does seem like there's this cycle of every, every six months we have a dove controversy. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that's going anywhere. Um, see you guys at the next one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, also we are recording this, uh, on women boycott Twitter day, uh, hashtag women boycott Twitter. Uh, this uh, came up, well, I mean, maybe not came up quickly, but it gathered steam very quickly, and it kind of had to. I, I, I feel like uh, it was a, uh, and someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that, that it really came about as a response to actress Rose McGowan uh, being uh, temporarily suspended from Twitter. Uh, it later came out that it was because something she had posted had a phone number in it, which they said was a violation. But of course, when all you see is Rose McGowan, who's been coming out against gross men in Hollywood and naming names and calling out Ben Affleck. And, you know, that when she's in the middle of all that and she gets suspended at a time that someone like Donald Trump, uh, you know, who a lot of people are calling for to be suspended uh, for attacks and for threatening nuclear war, 
and to have an act, you know, a popular actress uh, in this conversation be suspended. That started a lot of understandable backlash, really kind of highlighted what a lot of people see as the hypocrisy of Twitter uh, and the constant abuse uh, that, that women uh, undergo on Twitter, uh, even when trying to call out uh, something as bad as uh, this kind of chronic sexual harassment. Uh, in the marketing world, Cindy Gallup, of course, is supporting it, one of the biggest advocates for uh, gender issues and representation. And um, she was one of the first I saw, well, in the marketing world, really, uh, talking about a lot of Hollywood uh, celebrities. Alyssa Milano, Chrissy Teigen, uh, Mark Ruffalo. Uh, so some guys, some allies joining in on that. Uh, first, I'm just curious, Christina, Sammy, you're both active on Twitter. Are either of you taking part in this? No. And I feel like it, it kind of started as a nice response to supporting Rose McGowan, who's become some sort of warrior goddess for everyone in this past week. I love her. She faved one of my tweets earlier this week. I think she's doing tremendous work. But it's also, you know, not everyone can afford not to promote what they're working on on Twitter or take a day off from engaging in conversation and that sort of thing. So I think it's a very privileged point of view to be able to to rest on your laurels. But I have seen a lot of women and men kind of support women by amplifying women on, on Twitter um, on today, Friday, when we're recording to maybe retweet only women or post only stories, you know, videos, etc., written by women, created by women, instead of kind of shutting us out of the conversation even more. So I think it's a great show of solidarity, but it did only kind of come together, you know, late Thursday night and maybe didn't get the the widespread feel a, a true boycott would need in order to make an impact. So I, I think it's a great, you know, thank you to Rose. And, and you know, she obviously tweeting out a phone number is not a great look, but also neither is threatening nuclear war. So I, I think it's a, a wonderful point of view. But, um, you know, not not everybody can afford to to stay offline today. Yeah. I mean, cool. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, Rose McGowan, what she's been doing is is really great. But you know, um, I think it can it can definitely be seen as like peak white feminism to yep. only get behind um, yeah. something like this when it happens to a, a white woman. Um, so. I don't know. It's. I mean, also everybody should boycott Twitter every day. It's not good yeah. for anybody. <laughs> it really everybody is. Twitter is the worst, it's, isn't it? It's, it's really bad. It's very God. bad. Yeah, and you know, it's funny is when I saw that part of me, my first reaction was like, "No, no, don't, don't leave us, don't, don't leave us behind." <laughs> like, no, I don't want to be on Twitter if it's just all dudes. The only thing worse than Twitter is Facebook. Uh, yeah, our only last yeah. escape is Instagram because it's just puppies and vacation photos, and I'm here for that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, no, it's, it was interesting. Like when I saw that, and you know, Christina, not to put you on the spot, but I am curious to hear kind of uh, your thoughts going back. I actually happened to be listening to the episode we did on uh, Day Without a Woman, uh, and you took part in that. But I remember even in that episode, we talked about you were somewhat conflicted uh, as a reporter, as someone who writes about these issues. Is it better to take part or? Or is it better to stick around and be, you know, be there covering this stuff? You know, thinking back to that, how do you know, I guess, how do you feel about it? And how do you feel this compares to that that movement? Still conflicted. <laughs> <laughs> I was conflicted then. I've been conflicted every day since then. Um, you know, I, what are what are we supposed to do? I, I don't know what you do with your voice in this time. I, I, I don't know 
what to do on the internet at all this week with all of these stories of people's harassment. You know, honestly, as like a woman in this industry, I've faced harassment. I've considered putting my story on the internet this week. And then I, I didn't do that. And I, I feel conflicted about that. I, I, I don't know. Like the, the thing is that no matter what talking about these things, it kind of hurts. Like I, I, I've talked to so many women this week who are pained because it's, again, it's like not just Weinstein, it's every industry. And, you know, people, when talking about harassment in this way, um, so regularly and vocally on the internet, it makes it so that it can be really triggering for other people. And so you just feel bad all the time I don't know I felt bad all this week I don't know about you Sammy uh, no same um and I I think uh Emily Nussbaum made a, a really fun and interesting tweet yesterday I saw it last night where she was like I feel like my responses have been just off all week <laughs> like like so many of us are are our wires are getting crossed because there's not enough time in between widespread world scale monstrosities to recuperate or heal. And then especially when it turns personal, you you also don't know kind of how much of yourself to put out there or to, to reach out to people or how much of it you want to ignore. Like for me, a lot of times I try to be a safe space for people on the internet, but when it's so goddamn terrible, it's like... <laughs> Uh, you kind of have to call it out sometimes or or be honest with your friends and followers and kind of be be real with them and, and meet them where you are. So I think it's a test of fortitude for, for <laughs> women in these past few weeks and millennia of kind of how much they're they're willing to put up with. And I feel like we did reach a breaking point, but I feel like we've reached a breaking point, you know, every week since the campaign started. So it's it's kind of one of those things where you're, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. We'll support you either way. That's all I think that we can do is whatever feels right for you guys out there. That's what we'll support. Now, I remember being worried after the election that uh, a lot of women would leave politics, would feel that it w- wasn't worth the effort, that it wasn't worth the pain mm-hmm. and the struggle. Um, but luckily, we had the opposite. You know, a lot more women became came involved in politics because of that experience. And I hope that we'll have similar, you know, I think Reddit would be a much better site if it had, you know, 50%, a hundred percent more women uh, than it does now. Uh, you sure. know, it's the, it, it, those conversations, any any forum is a better place uh, be, by having women in it, by having a more balanced conversation. And I do worry that if Twitter becomes so hostile that women leave it, which would be 100 percent understandable because it is a hellscape. Uh, you know, man, it would just become this toxic morass that that continues to feed itself yeah. uh, in the way that Reddit uh, often has. I will say Cosmopolitan wrote an article this week about like all of the women like still in politics and deciding to run. And for a while, the first tweet response was a dick pic. So like there's 2017 for you. Yep. Like no matter what women are trying to do, we're still going to be slapped in the face with that no matter what. Yeah. I feel like it's also important to note that, like, as this, you know, um, women boycott Twitter, boycott Twitter thing is happening. There's also a hashtag, um, which is uh, women of color affirmation. Mm. That's that's happening at the same time. Yeah, and that obviously a, a pushback on, you know, to your point earlier, Christina, that some people feel like, oh, because it happened to a white woman now, uh, you know, after we've had so many incidents with Jamel Hill, Hill and, and, you know, these other high-profile mm-hmm. people of color going through really horrible stuff and nobody's organized a, you know, wide-scale boycott. Yeah. I, I tend to be kind of in the middle of that. It's just like, well, 
you know, it's, it's never too late, right? Like you, you can always, if something works, if there, if, if a protest has value, we saw this, you know, with Black Lives Matter and, and people, you know, there's certainly kind of other sides to that that are, that are, you know, not as great. Um, but it really did highlight that by, you know, bringing to light the plight of, uh, you know, a community uh, that these, these tactics, I guess, have value of how you raise, how you protest and how you raise. So, uh, well, I'm, I'm sure we will have even more to talk about a week from now because we are in the midst of this right now. And, uh, you know, a week from now, I'm sure Twitter will be all cleaned up, much better place. We'll have resolved <laughs> all this. But if not, we'll be here to talk about it. Uh, one last news item I want to talk about just because it raises a really fascinating point. Uh, WPP, which is the largest uh, advertising company in the world, uh, they are a holding company uh, that basically owns, uh, you know, they own Ogilvy, they own YNR, they own uh, Gray, uh, quite a few others. And um, they were written up in The Guardian uh, that basically pointed out that one or two of their agencies have been lobbying for the NRA uh, at the same, you know, within the same years that their agency, uh, their other agencies, their creative agencies have been making some of the best gun control ads in the world and have been winning at Cannes and, and you know, been getting a lot of attention for their gun control ads. So specifically, you've got, uh, they own the agency Gray, the agency network Gray, which created some of the most famous gun control ads of all time. Uh, there's the one where they uh, opened a gun store in Manhattan and the guns they were selling were... Um, Tim, remind me, were they literally the guns or just the same kind of guns that were used in mass killings? They, they were the same kind of guns. Yeah. They were not literally the weapon, no. But, uh, but yeah, they would say like, oh, this is an interesting gun. And then they'd say, yeah, it was used to kill, you know, X many children or X many people. And so the whole point being that it really brought home... You know the 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 toll of these. That one was a a massive campaign. I, I want to say that one. Um, you know, it can't win a Grand Prix at, at Cannes, but it, it won pretty good on the award show circuit, right, Tim? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it was a fantastic uh, stunt. Got tons of attention. I think it was our most read, one of our most read stories of the year on Adweek. Yeah. And uh, they also made, uh, going back a little, a few years before that, they made an ad, many of you may remember because it went quite viral, still gets passed around, of a guy going into his office and trying to shoot up, you know, kill his boss and shoot up his workplace, but he's using a musket. So he fires once and then he has to like muzzle load. You know, it takes place in a modern office, but the whole point is that when the Constitution was written, these were the kinds of guns uh, that the founding fathers were familiar with. And so that, you know, it ended up getting a ton of pass rounds, one of those early kind of viral hits. Well, anyway, um, that's what they've been known for. That's what they take a lot of pride in. Uh, they've mentioned it in some of their corporate reports before. But The Guardian uh, found out that Prime Policy Group, which is a subsidiary of, of a PR firm owned by WPP, has been working with the NRA, has been lobbying for them as recently as 2016. They don't seem to have renewed their uh, lobbying license or certificate with the NRA this year. But I mean, 2016, like they've been they've been working for them quite recently. So the question this raises is WPP is a giant global company. They have a lot of different PR firms. Also, Ogilvy's uh, government relations division had been working with uh, the NRA up till about 2009. Since then, they've really been focused or been known more for making gun control ads in partnership with Gabby uh, Giffords. Uh, so, you know, they've kind of turned around a bit. But the question to me is, can or should a parent company be consistent with its ethics, with its stances? Is that even possible? Tim, you've been covering WPP for a long time and, and these holding companies that kind of define advertising. Is it possible? 
for these big players to have consistent ethics? Uh, yes, it is, but it's difficult. And, and you know, what, this is not a new issue, by the way. You know, you think about going back years and years, Unilever, any large company with tons and tons of different units, operating units within it, uh, is going to have probably an issue like this. Like Unilever for many years was putting out the misogynistic Axe commercials at the same time as it was creating the Real Beauty campaign for Dove. So, I mean, these are, you know, these are not new issues. The difference now, I think, is that, you know, it's become so much more easy for consumers to scrutinize companies' behavior. And they have, of course, you know, uh, consumers have all these platforms to call you out, you know, that they never had before. So, you know, regardless of whether it's fair or not, you know, you can end up with an image problem. You can end up with people calling you hypocritical. And, you know, whatever, I mean, the only way to fix that is to actually become aligned uh, in your behaviors. And, you know, it's easier said than done for a large company. Um, but it does point, I think, to the importance of, of companies, even big companies, to try to have a sense of purpose that unifies, you know, every unit within it uh, and to do, you know, everything they can to kind of bring those, to bring the actual behavior in line with that purpose, you know. So the lesson, I think, is that behavior, uh, as much as messaging, is just as important for all companies these days, whether you're big or small. I mean, I think Unilever probably, uh, sorry, I mean, uh, WPP probably is going to be moving to not work for the NRA, hopefully, you know, uh, in the next year or <laughs> so. Hope. So they get, when they get called out, they can fix it. But then the next step is to fix it before you get called out. Well, their, their response was certainly not uh, a, any sort of real mea culpa. They basically just said, our PR departments around the world work with people on all ends of the ideological spectrum. <laughs> you know, which it's, that's fine. That's valid. Except that WPP has also kind of gone back and forth on how they describe and how they take pride in their gun control work. Uh, they've cited it before as some of their, you know, seminal kind of work toward human rights and toward, uh, you know, they put it in their cause marketing uh promotional materials. And so it's one of those things where, you know, hey, that's fine. You want to be totally mercenary and play both sides. That's fine. Lots of people do yeah, that. Yeah. I mean, that's completely soulless, isn't um, it? I mean, yeah. But I mean, that's what the social platforms are doing, right? Yeah, that's true. But, you know, if you, if you, if you, if you do want to have, uh, well, WPP is also different, right? It's not, uh, it's not necessarily uh, trying to appeal to a consumer uh, for the most part. You know, these are businesses that, that work with other businesses. Um, so like a Unilever will probably want to fix that problem more quickly than a WPP would. Um, but they don't like negative headlines either. So, you know, they, they will do something about it if it gets bad enough. In the end, that uh, contract with the NRA this last year was like $40,000. That that's for a company making as many billions of dollars as WPP. That is just not a headache that's worth having, you know, for forty thousand uh, bucks. So you know, if if they were having any plans to renew that lobbying, it, I'm going to guess that they're going to decline. Uh, but, uh, all right, well, let's move on. I want to make sure we have plenty of time for the rest of our discussions. Uh, let's talk about this week's ads worth watching. All right, Tim, this is the part of the show where you round up the best ads of the week and we've got some fun ones uh what do you want to feature this week well it's halloween season so uh, i want to talk quickly about the um bite-sized horror films that mars the candy maker uh has been making with fox uh the broadcaster they've been creating these two-minute horror films they're calling them bite-sized horror uh they've been running on fox properties so i don't know exactly i'm, I'm supposed to um hopefully speak to fox about this today in fact um They've been running on like FS1 during baseball. They've been running on FX um, in full, like these two-minute uh, short films. 
Uh, there was a, there's, I don't want to spoil them, but here's a brief overview of the ones that we've seen. Uh, one is for Skittles, and uh, there's no product, by the way, in these. They're, they're just sort of, here's a bite-sized horror film brought to you by. So this one, brought to you by Skittles, um, shows a woman in an elevator who gets off at the wrong floor. She encounters this sort of creepy guy. Uh, facing away from her, and, and he wants something from her, which sort of leads to this chilling conclusion. Uh, there's a Starburst ad about a kid who runs into a second version of himself uh, in his family's yard, which also doesn't end very well. And then there's a uh, an M&M's film um, where a father, I believe it's a father and his two daughters are driving down a deserted road uh, where one of the girls apparently has heard that the ghost of a motorcycle rider uh, hangs out, a guy who died on that road. Uh, so let's listen to a little bit of the motorcycle one. It'll give you a, a bit of sense of the flavor of these. This is the road where the ghost of a slain motorcyclist haunts those who call to him. They say once you've been touched by his light, he stays with you forever. I hate this. So what are we supposed to do? Just wait around here all night for a freaking light? Blink your headlights. Three times. One... Two and three. Oh my God! It's it's him! It's the dead motorcyclist! I want to go now. No, Dude, I, I want to go. Too. Too. Can no, 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 girls, 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 relax. You know what that is, right? It's the moonlight reflecting off the swamp gas up ahead. That's all. It's just an optical illusion. Is it just me, or is the gas getting closer? I believe there's a Snickers one too, which I haven't been able to track down yet. That's the interesting thing about these. They're running online and, and uh, the spots say to go to fox.com to, to see them. And, and then you go to fox.com and they're not there, which is creepy in Spooky. itself. Spooky. Clickbait. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I actually saw the M&M's one during Fox's new show, Ghosted. Um, but I watch on, on Hulu Live, so maybe it is one of those funky internet-y type things and it uh, was a little spooky it got me a, a little bit they're goofy but they're fun uh, m&m is yeah. the is the motorcycle one i i get the product yeah. mix yes up. exactly I, I think the skittles one uh I, I thought that one was the best that one apparently ran during the, the baseball playoffs this year and it made me very happy that i didn't allow my nine-year-old to stay up for the baseball playoffs <laughs> that's the uh that's the elevator the creepy elevator right the elevator one right yeah totally. um yeah they're they're legitimately good. I mean, they're well crafted. Uh, they're they're pretty freaky. I absolutely love the the motorcyclist, um, the mm-hmm. the dad in the car. Sammy, are you like a horror kind of person? It, I, no. I would guess no. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. Absolutely not. The like movies I see in theaters are like animated children's films or gentle comedies. <laughs> it's nothing, nothing action or horror related. So it was just spooky enough for me. <laughs> it's just like each one, each one has those moments that I love about horror where you're like, don't, no, no, don't, don't, don't look through the, don't look through don't the make binoculars. A bad decision. Right? It's like the Geico commercial, right? Yeah. Don't turn if around. If you're in a horror movie, you make bad decisions is what you do. <laughs> Christina, what do you think of these? Oh, they were fun. I liked them. Mm-hmm. I really, I really like the Skittles one as well. That was definitely my favorite one. Um, solely because it like takes a few minutes to actually like understand what's going on. And then like once, you know, once you get it, you're like, oh, <laughs> yeah, they're going to do this to another person. This is what happens. <laughs> it's horror. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I mean, w- this is probably obvious, but um, Halloween is the biggest holiday of the year for candy marketers. So obviously 
underwriting horror content around this time of year is a pretty cool strategy. I won't spoil the Skittles one, but it did remind me of a story, and I'm curious if you guys remember this, because it has haunted me. You know, like when you read a certain story as a kid and it just sticks with you, but it's the one about the, the kid whose dad gives him a time machine. D- did anyone remember? No. And it, and it um, no. the forward button is broken, so he can only click the back button. And his dad looks like super depressed. And he just like he's just wearing his robe, and he looks all sad. And he just gives it to his son. He's like, "Here you go, happy birthday." And and his son's like, "Whoa, a time machine! This is great." And his dad's like, "Uh huh." And then uh, and then he, do you guys does this ring a bell to anybody? No. no. He like he hits the button and he goes back, and he's in like 1968 or something, and. He's just running around. He's panicking. He doesn't know what's happening. And he like smashes into a window somehow in a panic and like cuts himself. And he's like, oh, my dad had a scar in this exact place. And then he like goes oh, goes to the no. hospital and like the nurse that's taking care of him is his mom. And he realizes like uh, he is his dad. <laughs> this oh, is horrible. I mean, and it was in a kid's story collection, but I've run across what? people. I'm, I'll, if you're listening to this and you remember this story, uh, <laughs> drop me an email at podcast at adweek.com uh, because, yeah, it, I've, I've met several people who like because there's so many haunting things about this, right? The inevitability of like this eternal cycle, the fact that you have to marry your mom, <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, man. but it's not a horror story. <laughs> Story per se, but it has haunted me longer than he. And that one, the Skittles one, kind of had some of that to me, or li- a little bit of the ring as well. Um, well, what else do you have for us this week, Tim? Well, speaking of creepy, you guys remember the Halo Top robot ad? Uh, from <laughs> it's a- all I see when I close <laughs> my eyes. <laughs> Everyone, you <laughs> Everyone you love is gone. Everyone you love is gone. So the maker of Everyone You Love Is Gone, Mike Diva, the YouTube director. Uh, somehow managed to get an, uh, an ad gig uh, for a government account, which was bizarre. <laughs> he, he's doing ads for the LA Metro. Uh, and, you know, Mike Diva is one of the most talented uh, young directors out there. He's got, he's got a great mix of insanity, but it's also so well produced. It's not just, you know, a lot of people make weird stuff online, but this guy makes weird stuff that's also amazing. And so he was asked to uh, create some some PSAs for the uh, LA Metro, basically trying to tell people to be nicer to other people on the on the subway and on the buses of, this, of the transit system. So I believe it was actually the client that came up with this idea of having a superhero uh, named Superkind, who kind of pr- prowls the, uh, the the metro uh, system, kind of telling people who are being rude to kind of be nicer. So what Mike Diva did was he took that idea and he blew it out into this crazy sort of Japanese-themed uh, series of three spots. Uh, let's listen to one now um, before we get into talking a little bit more about them. Yeah, so the idea here is that Superkind is actually uh, a, a J-pop superstar by day, and she's a, a superhero by night. And she uh, hangs out on the metro and constantly runs into this guy named Rude Dude, who looks like a, an extra from Yo Gabba Gabba. He's like this furry orange monster <laughs> who's who's you know eating on the subway, and he's 
he's uh, sort of taking up spreading on the subway. Yeah. yeah, he's just being kind of a jerk. And so the ads are sort of ninety seconds, and they they're a funny mix of. Uh, real life, so they filmed people actually on the subway, kind of interacting with Rude Dude, and then it goes into these kind of crazy little vignettes in the middle where uh, Superkind kind of sings a Japanese pop song, and and uh, you know it's a, it's a very strange strange thing, you know. But uh, I, I find I found them really awesome. They're visually amazing, as I said before. You know, Mike does does stuff that's so well detailed and and super fun. And yeah, I mean, you know, he's obsessed with Japanese advertising in general, and it was kind of incredible to see the LA Metro of all advertisers kind of embracing that and letting him do, letting him kind of go nuts with this stuff. This one, like Halo Top, really highlighted that he is so good at silence that's not silent. You know, the the when all the audio cuts off and there's nothing, but there's just this enough background noise to be awkward. So we saw that in the Halo Top ad. We saw that in this where it's just like there's there's just this kind of weird. And so the part of the gimmick of each ad is that after she sings her song and it cuts back to the real world, it's just a woman in a weird suit standing on the metro. Everyone's awkward. She's like holding a pose like with two fingers over her eye or like a salute or whatever. And then everyone's just staring at her. And the rude dude doesn't do anything, just like real life. <laughs> 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 right, totally. Oh, they're so good. Yeah. So I mean he's you know, he's obsessed with Japanese commercials because there's they are so visual and and uh you know, his point of view is is American advertising could use a lot more of that and, and I think it does appeal to, to young young folks and you know, young people are the ones a lot of times uh acting kind of crazy on the subway. So Hey No offense to young people, but <laughs> rude, a lot of younger rude dudes. Although there's some some older rude dudes as, as we've learned this week too. My favorite is when he's got the, he's <laughs> blocking the lane and blocking the aisle with his bike, and they just stare each other down for a long time, and then he just rings the bell. <laughs> it's just like I was like, yeah, that's about as much response as you're going to get from a dude on the on the subway. Uh, oh, and by the way, uh, Mike Diva is working on a a horror short starring Craig Ferguson. So oh my God. that should be pretty interesting. Huh. Um, okay, well, thank you, Tim, for rounding those up. And definitely recommend everyone check out GoToAdWeek.com. You can click on the creativity section, or you can just Google around and find those. They are all fantastic. Uh, so really good lineup this week. But it's time to move on to our big discussion of the week. All right, we teased this one a few weeks ago when we announced the lineup of our Brand Genius Awards. Uh, this is Adweek's uh, Marketer of the Year, essentially. Uh, we uh, give these out uh, to kind of some of the brightest minds, as you might think, from a name like Brand Genius, and uh, across so many different categories. And that's to me, is always the fun part, is that a lot of these categories we're all familiar with, whether it's CPG or fashion or, you know, there's certain ones that all of us are kind of a little more aware of. And maybe social media to an extent, uh, but then there's there's ones that you know you just don't hear about as often, and so it's uh, been re- it's always really fun to read these. Definitely go to adweek.com, check out the full brand genius write up. So much uh, content, interviews, great minds there. Uh, but uh, we've got several of the writers here who worked on this. Sammy and Christina both wrote profiles in in this year's. Uh, Christina, you wrote a few. Um, Accurate. Yeah, <laughs> two of them. <laughs> uh, Victor Luis uh, at Coach. So tell mm-hmm. us, I thought to, to me this was the most fascinating because I have not 
you know, Coach is not a brand I really think about or have followed. Sure. Um, so tell me about their their transition over the last few years. Yeah. Um, Victor Louis, also from Rhode Island. So we got to bond about <laughs> that. Um, but basically, uh, at Coach, they've been trying to, um, you know, move this brand away from what you thought of where, like, you know, um, discounts at uh, different, you know, mall retailers and logo heavy sort of stuff to, um, back to what it used to be, um, where it was like a known for its leather and, and, and its craft. Um, it's kind of what coach, you know, the founding of coach was, um, based around. And so they've done that by, you know, new product designs, also bringing back sort of the older, um, super chill 80s bag <laughs> designs um and then they've also partnered with selena gomez who like if you're gonna try and get young people to uh, like your brand again i guess selena gomez is probably <laughs> the person you're gonna want to go with um and they were able to um get like six billion impressions from a campaign with her which is kind of nuts um, so yeah, it's, it's been a lot of that stuff. And then, um, you know, coach as, as a company has acquired, um, you know, two, two different, um, you know, retailers known for their designs, uh, Stuart Weitzman and Kate Spade. Kate Spade was more recent. And so now it's, it's just trying to like take a brand that had been sort of, luxury a while ago then got to be sort of I guess as Robert put it um Robert Clara who kind of runs brand genus he put it as like the McDonald's of luxury (laughs) um and then to like bring it back uh to to a true luxury brand again it's 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 been an interesting thing to watch now, one that we had in there uh, that I believe we talked a little bit about last time, but uh, after reading the profile, I had to bring it up again. is Taj Alavi from uh, Instagram, the head of brand marketing at Instagram. Uh, and we specifically point out that one of her big accomplishments in the few years that she's been there is redesigning the logo and the branding of Instagram. Tim, you famously took a big old crap all over that logo when they redesigned it. <laughs> um, I'm curious still if don't, you... Still don't like it. Yeah, so I'm just curious. Have you warmed up to it? Like, I've kind of warmed up to it, uh, I have to admit. No, I haven't i like uh <laughs> oh my god <laughs> i forget what the uh i forget what the um name is is it skeuomorphism oh like when you try I to make a the, thing look like a when you make the icon look like the real thing i, I love the skeuomorphism of the uh of the old logo i still feel like the new i mean maybe the new one works better in terms of um small sizes and so on but i just thought the old one was classy and the new one's not yeah it was like old just... apple versus new apple right <laughs> like it's that you know, the charm is kind of gone in favor of style. I would say about a lot of logos, the Google, uh, you know, cartoony new, new-ish logo for whenever they redesigned their font a year or two ago. I still like the older one. I mean, you could argue that it, it looks dated or, you know, maybe if the Instagram old logo was still around, it would look dated now. But I don't think so. I think it was lovely. I, I, and the new one is just... I mean, you get used to everything, right? It's, it doesn't. I, I don't groan when I look at it now, but I, I'm not a huge. Fan. I'm just not a fan. A huge fan of it now. Sammy, I'm curious. Uh, you know, I used to say this about Instagram, and I think this is still true that it's the only social network where I go and I end up liking people more. 
uh, after looking at it um, because, you know, it's like Twitter, Facebook, it, you reach a point where you're overexposed to people that you know and you start to like like them a little less. And one of her goals with Instagram was kind of maintain a sense of values and um, – you know, welcoming and acceptance, uh, you know, a different vibe, obviously, than Twitter. Have they done that? I mean, is it is it a different place than other social platforms? I definitely think so. And I, I joked about it earlier where it's kind of like our, our last resort of safe space, basically, on <laughs> uh, as far as social media goes. Um, I, there's, there's a few tweets out there where it's like um, – Instagram is like where you put your best self forward and like everybody's super happy and positive. And then Twitter is where you talk about how much you all want to die together. <laughs> like there's very different tones and moods. So I feel like on Instagram, it's still a lot of kind of aspirational content and, and definitely kind of, you know, lifestyle influencers who have seemingly perfect lives, but we all know they're not so perfect. But a lot of it is also your friends who like went to Ireland <laughs> or got married. And it's still, you know, trying to put a, a shiny filter on everything, but it really is kind of a very, I think, supportive place for people still. Tim, you you actually are one of my favorite people to follow on Instagram, uh, just because I think you use it so well. Um, you know, in terms of capturing. Wow, like, thank you. Well, like when you you know <laughs> when you when you travel around, like with it, you did a you know for several weeks you were kind of traveling around, and you just like you you really kind of helped sell me on stories on Instagram stories. Like, tell me about your experience because I'm assuming you embraced that kind of quickly over that process of vacation and all that? Yeah, I mean, I don't use Instagram stories that much. I did for a month or so, um, like you say, like when I was kind of traveling. Uh, I, I find that I don't have as much time as I would like to kind of do that stuff. Um, but yeah, I love Instagram also. I mean, I, I wonder if it's as simple as Twitter is words first, Instagram is pictures first, and, you know, if things that are words first in our current culture are not probably going to be very nice. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, Instagram has been, um, it, it, that whole idea, and, and I think a lot of people that I follow do it a lot better than I do, but but when you create a good, a cool, fun story in Instagram, it is like super personal, But and, and just the process of creation on Instagram, uh, it's kind of an embodiment of creativity and and the folks that do it well, I mean, brands, of course, do it, um, which is a whole different thing. Um, but the people, you know, the ordinary folks that I follow who make great stories on Instagram, I mean, it's a it's a delightful thing to see, you know. Can I use Instagram stories as a segue into my brand genius write-up? Because it is tangentially related, actually. <laughs> to Linda Boff? Yeah. All so. Right. um So I, I wrote about Linda Boff, who is the, the C CMO of GE. And a few weeks ago, one of their kind of in-person, um, uh, not even a marketing thing, just kind of a, a campaign for recognition, um, what, took over the really cool starry ceiling of Grand Central. And so I was there for the event and it was called Unseen Stars. And they did a whole presentation about kind of women in science and technology that have helped get us to where we are today, but don't always receive the recognition thanks to history, I guess. Um <laughs> 
And and one of the so they turned these women into constellations and like projected them on this huge ceiling. It's twelve stories tall. And one of the women who's one of the constellations was there. She's the chief technology officer of the United States of America. So to be in the room like where she could see herself for the first time, kind of being recognized, was was very uh, touching. But I was I was posting about it on Instagram stories and. Almost never before had so many people replied to it to ask, like, what is this? Where is this? What is going on? This is beautiful, and it seems really cool. And by so many people, I mean three friends <laughs> hey. uh, who, who replied. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a good batting average for me. Um, but the, the Unseen Stars campaign was really just a – a small part of, of what GE does. And I, I really enjoy talking to Linda about how they, they when it comes to their advertising, her whole thing is not wanting to be a pothole that people have to get around in order to keep enjoying whatever content they were already enjoying. She kind of likes to, to consider themselves storytellers and, you know, always innovating. So it was really kind of nice to, to speak with her about that and kind of how they um, approach a lot of their different products and technologies. Christina, I did want to make sure we had time to talk about Allegro hair at Adidas. Um, this is a, yeah. a really, a, now does she oversee specifically originals? Yes. And such a fascinating line with such an amazing story over the last few years. So, so tell us a bit about kind of you, you had a, an interesting point, but I wanted you to go into a little bit about how she wanted to change things like anybody does when they come in uh, to a, a, a top-level marketing role. But at the same time, she didn't want to kind of, sounds like, based on some of her initial conversations, didn't want to throw out everything. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I, I think for most marketers, you come in and you you try to be like, oh, okay, you've hired me for a reason because your brand needs a total refresh and I am the only person to do it. And so when you've like, you know, uh, gotten a job like that and, and, and tried to um, make your mark on something, it's really easy to not want to do anything like you've done it in the past. And so that was her initial instinct. And I guess um, because of who she is, she's someone who really questions everything. Um, that's part of her personality as she described it to me. Um, and so she ended up, you know, just like on a whim going over um, to this woman running um a oh god what's it? a focus group focus group is yes. the word <laughs> or the thing i'm looking for and ask this man you know what annoys him about brands and he uh he he said that they get stuck in their own paradigm and she realized that she was getting stuck in her own paradigm by you know coming in as a marketer and being like i need to change everything so she went back and um, instead of completely revamping things, um, she tried to take what was already working and go from there. It's, I mean, if you look at what's happened with Adidas Originals over the last, you know, 18 months or so, I mean, what they've been able to do that they took a, a brand and were able to partner with Alexander Wang and totally retool how you would think a brand would approach fashion week and then even allowing him to completely change what their um you know iconography looks like flipping a logo upside down turning stripes inside out it's it's not something that 
you know, a lot of brands would be able to do because it's like, what? That's our thing. You can't do that. So I think for, for her, it's been, you know, they have original in their name. They have to try and be original in everything that they are doing. And um, that involves opening up the brand to different creative types and allowing them to actually make the brand their own. You know, take with take that with a grain of salt. It's still a major brand and corporation, and I'm sure there are many layers to get through still. But, you know, from what we're seeing, um, it's it's pretty interesting stuff. They have a cool partner in uh, Johannes Leonardo, too, that make their a lot of their ads. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they won a Grand Prix at Cannes for the music uh, in the latest spot, which was the... Uh, the Sinatra song, um, my way. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, they, they've done the whole strike through campaign was kind of fascinating yep. that they did, you know, striking through the name of your brand is not something most brands would be okay with. <laughs> but no. <laughs> visually, it, visually it was like super notable. And I mean, it's the, yeah. it's the marquee account for, for JL and they do a great job on it. Now, I want to talk a little bit about Casper. Uh, Luke Sherwin, one of the co-founders there, and the, the I believe the creative chief as well. Casper, I think we all know for two things. You know, one is their mattress design, and one is their distribution. Uh, those have been kind of the thing that everyone talks about when you talk about Casper. Is they ship it to your door, and they made these kind of you know crushed downable mattresses that they can send to you, uh, which has become a crowded category. And so, you know, to me, what was fascinating about our write-up on on Luke Sherwin is that he really sees what they're selling is not about the product or about the distribution, which is good, because then you end up in this, like, you know, battle to just be the most loud of your competitive set. Instead, he's talking a lot about sleep, and about the cultural conversation and the, the he, he uses the phrase that there's a, a cultural shift in the way people are perceiving sleep. Um, and, you know, he, he didn't go into a ton of depth on that, but a lot of their marketing has revolved around sleep, around quality of sleep, around, um, you know, they've run some really fascinating ads at like two in the morning aimed at people who have insomnia and creating these clever ways to help people get to sleep uh, beyond just their mattresses. Uh, but I thought that was kind of interesting. Tim, are you seeing this kind of... Uh, as a differentiator for Casper, I mean, as as this is increasingly just a hugely crowded space. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, it's 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 one of those examples of a brand, you know, going beyond the product specs and all that, and just sort of having a deeper look at what the category is. And I mean, sleep is a third of people's lives, and there's so much to kind of dig into there. I mean, and, and they're a very well designed brand, also. That, that I think that goes hand in hand. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're doing a fantastic job. Sammy, it feels like, I don't know why I'm picking you out, maybe just because of some of your tweets, but it feels like sleep is like an achievement these days. Like if you can, if you can get to sleep, if you can have good sleep, like you have accomplished something. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I was laughing when you said sleep is a third of people's lives. Cause for me, it's like a quarter. <laughs> like I feel like it's, it's a little less depending on the day. Um, but you know, I use a, a specific podcast to help me sleep. It's not quite ASMR, but it is just boring stories basically for adults, like bedtime stories. Um, it, it feels like, you know, with so much that is threatening to keep us awake at night, it does feel like an accomplishment to actually sleep. So I 
don't know how, how you know, new parents do it or single parents. I, I feel like that would be a whole thing. I consider myself a single parent of my cat. <laughs> and yes, she does keep me up sometimes, but that's entirely different. I'm not equating my experience to anybody else's. <laughs> um, but I, I do feel like there's lots of challenges out there that can prevent you from sleeping. So I do appreciate his point of view of like it, it's more than just, you know, a convenient mattress delivery service. It's, you know – we, we're thinking about it differently at a time where people praise being busy so much. It's kind of nice to turn that off. All right. Well, we are out of time this week. Thank you so much, Sammy, Christina, Tim. Thank you so much for joining. That was a honestly, that was one of my favorite episodes. I think that was a really we covered a lot of ground, a lot of good discussion. Uh, and don't forget, you can join in the conversation too. You can find us on uh, Twitter. I'm Griner G R I N E R. Uh, Christina, you're Christina Monlos. One word. Yeah, Christina Monlos. I think. Yeah. yeah. Two L's. <laughs> Um, and uh, and Tim is just Nud in UDD. Easy to find. And uh, But you can also hit us at podcast at adweek.com. We love hearing from you. Our theme music is by Home. Uh, this episode was produced by Christina Monlos. Thank you, Christina. Uh, please take a moment <laughs> to leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews mean a lot to us personally, and they also help new listeners discover the show. I'm David Griner with Adweek, and we will be back next week. Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just a thing for you. Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brand or a company, they've got the tools and know-how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality.